And so we ran through Wild Sheep and, you know, almost 70,000. Did you run it down the middle? Ran it straight down the middle. Yeah. Um, I think when I was running Wild Sheep, I might have actually been slightly left center. And I was in an 18-foot boat. Paul was in a 20-foot boat. Anders was in a 20-foot boat. This is before we had the third 20-foot gear boat. And um, they were both just getting clobbered <laughs> by these waves. <laughs> just smashed. You know, 20-foot gear boats, 4-foot diameter tubes. Right. Like, huge boats just getting smashed. <laughs> <laughs> and comparatively, I'm in this little 18-foot boat. 18 is not a little boat. By any means. Anders being your brother, which makes Anders watching him brother. get clubbed like a seal pup by these big rapids. He's my little brother, so it's yeah. even better. Yeah. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. A hot drink can become cool in two primary ways, through conduction and convection. Conduction occurs when two objects touch each other. Imagine holding a piece of ice. Before long, your fingers are cold and the ice begins to melt. That's conduction. Convection occurs when a gas or liquid moves from being different temperatures. When you heat water over a stove, the warm water moves up and the cool water moves down. That's what you're seeing when water boils, and that's convection. A stainless vacuum bottle prevents conduction from occurring by creating a void between the walls of the bottle, thermos, or cup and the outside air. It prevents convection by keeping all the liquid inside at the same temperature. That's how a Stanley product keeps your cold drink cold and your hot drink hot. And they've been doing it for 110 years. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Stanley 1913, and you can check out their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com. How have you been? What have you been up to? I've been well. I went on a 30-day Grand Canyon trip this winter. Is that how you got the glitter on your face? Yeah, it's just residual. <laughs> Lasts forever. You know, never comes off. <laughs> 30-day Grand Canyon trip. Uh, I think a lot of people don't know how long it takes to float the Grand Canyon. There are different regulations for different seasons. Um, so in the summertime, I believe it's 14 days. It might be 16. Mm-hmm. Um, shoulder season, spring and fall, you can have up to 21 days. And this is talking from Lee's Ferry down to Diamond Creek. And then beyond Diamond Creek, you can have some more days. So in the wintertime, you can take 25 days from Lee's Ferry to Diamond Creek. And then for us to have 30 days, we took five days below Diamond to Pierce Ferry. So that's the maximum days. Mm -hmm. For the wintertime. Gotcha. How fast do you think you could do it at the flow that it was at? Oh, um... Certainly faster than that. There were definitely trips that were still doing it in 21 days. Yeah. How many miles are you floating on a 30-day trip? On a 30-day trip, that was 280. Okay. So are you doing 10 miles a day? We did 10 miles a day for a lot of days, which was pretty slow, especially if you're wanting some layover days. And it worked great. I think we had nine layover days still. 
um, wasn't hard. Yeah. We got really lucky. We didn't have that upstream. W. <laughs> so why don't why don't rafting guides like talking about Uncle Gusty? You know, I might be controversial. I really don't care about saying the word wind. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to though. Um, you know, I do think it's like all things. You know, if you the more you call something in, the more it's likely going to be there. Mm. You know, if you're calling in an elk well or if you're bird hunting. If you're fishing and you're going to the spots where you need to be, mm. sometimes maybe wind works the same yeah. way. So speak of the devil. Speak of the devil. That kind of thing. That kind of thing. Why is it a problem for wind to show up when you're rafting? Uh, because it's anti-gravity. Yeah. Canyons work like big air ducts is how I like to explain them to people. Okay. And hot air likes to rise. And so if you're going down river you're going with gravity and so in the afternoon wind tends to come up canyon um i kind of use a rule of thumb that if the wind's blowing down canyon you're likely going to have a storm system come in yeah for sure something's something's coming for you yeah because it's it's beating the natural tendency of hot air to rise so you've got you know just air that's moving fast Mm -hmm. um if you're guiding that means that you know, you're, you're in charge of the show. You need to keep everything moving. Right. And if the wind starts coming hard up Canyon, a lot of times you row as hard as you humanly can and cannot go down river. Yeah. That's, that's a tough thing. And guides are tired. Um, guides are tired. <laughs> guides are tired. I think that's a, that's a universal thing about guides. Yeah. 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 They're tired. And then when they have to pull a 2,000-pound boat into the wind. Um, and someone decided they want to jump off and hang off the backside and just, like, oh drop a drop a human body anchor. Yeah. <laughs> Not helpful. <laughs> Not helpful. And then there's fire wind, too. Sure. That's its own different storm, clearly. Which we do have to deal with um, guiding in these rivers. Yeah, absolutely. I ran the jet boat up. I can't remember which fire it was. It wasn't last year. It was the one before that. But there was a fire going on on the Washington side that basically burned up to where the salmon comes in. Yep. I think that's the Eagle Creek fire. Um, I saw that start, actually. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. I uh, called in on the sat phone at like 5 in the morning to uh, Baker County Sheriff because that was the emergency contact number I had. Gotcha. And the person on the line was like, who are you? Where are you? Yeah. Why are you calling? Where did it start? Um, there were a bunch of different strikes. Must have been just below Cash Creek or farther below Cash Creek, Shovel Creek? The strikes I saw were right above the Spalding Cabins on the Salmon, which okay. was about mile 17-ish. Um, so 17 miles above the Snake. Yep. And it kind of ran a line from there due west. I guess it had come from the west running east. And so I think it had struck... Um, up above the snake, there on the salmon, and I want to say it struck over by Troy mm. um, in that same kind of line. Were, were your clients freaking out at all? No, I think everyone was kind of stoked. It wasn't one of those storms that lasts forever. It was a storm that I've never seen before. Huge, big, dark red cloud. Um, I'd been guiding all night, like had a client that just right. needed some extra help that night, and so... Um, 
I'd been awake for a long time and it was like four in the morning and just got that muggy, hot, weird feel. And it's summertime, so it's light at, you know, four something in the morning. (laughs) Too early. (laughs) Too early. (laughs) Too early. And I was just trying to pretend that it didn't exist and, and go to sleep and this big, dark, looked like Star Wars, like dark red energetic cell Hmm. moved up and over the hill and um some folks got it on film just a single strike hit the hillside and sure enough started started smoking what was interesting to me when i went up the fire was probably a quarter mile up the canyon wall um it had burned down to the river and was going back up and going upstream you know 25 miles an hour in the jet boat you could feel that heat wave coming down and across into the river hard enough that you would want to like there, there are times that I put my hand up to kind of block that heat from hitting my face. And I was like, I say over a quarter mile away from that fire. It's, it's amazing how heat moves around in those canyons. Oh man, that's real. Yeah. But it's always an adventure. Uh, how long have you been guiding whitewater? This is my 11th season. 11th season. 11. I wonder how many river miles you got under your belt. You know, I never kept a true log. Yeah. At one point I did figure out days because I had just the number of trips that I'd done. And I think I was, when I first started guiding, about every three and a half, about three and a half years I'd spent an entire year or more of my life on mm-hmm. the river. And, um, since then I've done a lot more trips in a season. Right. So I kind of just started figuring it by. Yeah. A lot. By years. Spent a lot of days out. Would you say it's fair to say, I don't know, 60 days out a summer? Oh yeah. Maybe more. Maybe more. Kay. Not so much anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing a little bit more back at the boathouse and. You're um, more of a domestic managerial only slightly yeah (laughs) (laughs) only slightly i think i still have like 14 trips out but not 18 well there's a there's a few things that i really want to ask you about today and we're gonna we're gonna start light and we're gonna get heavy at the end (laughs) river meals um Mm. cooking on the river i think that's that's one thing that that i pretty much always loved And you're really limited in the number of tools that you have. You're often limited on your ingredients. You probably had a great plan going into the trip for what every (laughs) meal was going to be. And then people eat differently and they show up with different food allergies and intolerances that they didn't tell you about. Um, Boats flip. Stuff gets broken, lost. Bread gets wet. Bread gets wet. You have to be really, really creative. But the expectation for the types of trips that you and I were doing was that it was a really good restaurant quality meal, not just like a, Hey, we're camping, you know, this is relatively warm. I hope you enjoy it. Like we were putting out multi-course meals, six ranch beef, six ranch beef, Carmen ranch pork. You yeah. Know, lots Hawkins of local River, stuff. Hawkins sisters, chickens. Totally. Um, and all the guides really took a lot of pride in, the presentation of, of every meal. Talk to me a little bit about river cooking um, in, in an informative way so that people that 
that want to take their their camp cooking whether it's on a river or or whatever camping they're doing kind of to the next level Ooh, we're really fortunate in that we have someone who does a lot of the prep um, before packing out and I think that's really where a lot of that work comes in before a trip Mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily need to be super elaborate or take a ton of time but it does take some time in figuring out those meals ahead of time and also thinking about what your aim is Mm. like do you have a bunch of kids on a trip are you do you need fast everyone's going to eat it food or are you going with some friends that you want to sit around and grill some food and, you know, maybe eat some cheese and crackers ahead of time and sip some drinks and it doesn't matter how long it takes to grill. You're going to just like take that time to slow down and enjoy that. So I think that's the first step is like, what is your aim? Yeah. Let's say we want to go a little bit bougie. We want to be a little bit fancy. What are the cooking surfaces that we have to use? Um, I think a flat top griddle is one of the best cooking tools there is um whether you're doing it on a a cook stove whether you run out of propane and you're doing it on a fire um you can use it either any anywhere i think that's one of probably our most used piece of piece of gear yeah it's heavy and it's worth it right same thing with dutch ovens um I'm not going to get into the argument of cast iron versus aluminum for a riverware Dutch oven. Um, they both have their place, I think. And uh, But a Dutch oven, regardless of what it's made out of, important. Wait, wait, wait. I want to <laughs> talk about it now. I would have let that go. I'm, I'm team cast iron. Are you team aluminum? I am starting to be team both. Uh, I used to be hardcore really? team cast iron. Um and we're talking cast aluminum, which for folks that don't know, um, you know, looks the same. It's going to have a little bit more of that silver tint, but it's significantly lighter, maybe 50, 70 percent oh, lighter. At least. Yeah. Yeah. Massively lighter. But they they don't have a good handle on the lid. That handle always gets smashed and broken and gone. I think G- GSI is the only one I know of that even makes them. Mm-hmm. And... They aluminum is more conductive and has less mass than cast iron, so it heats up faster and can heat up a little bit disproportionately mm-hmm. and less even. So you can burn food more easily in aluminum, but it weighs a lot less. And we're talking about moving these kitchens on and off of boats, on beaches all the time. You know, it's a whole process. Yeah. So weight does matter, but so what would you prefer an aluminum Dutch oven for? Well, as far as maintenance, um, hmm. if you know cast iron and you, you love it and you work with it, you know how to take care of that. Yeah. Um, if you're maybe new to managing cast iron, let alone doing that in an outside environment, that's a whole other thing. Whether you need it to cool down yep. and you can't put it on the boat because you have a red hot iron thing that you're about to put on a rubber boat, that doesn't work. Um, so you put it in the water and you warp it somehow, crack it or someone, uh, uses a bunch of soap on it and then you're just like spending time forever. That's its own thing. You know, then you're spending forever trying to 
re-oil it or you don't put it away totally dry and it does still have some oil or you oiled it before it was totally dry and then you're just starting to rust it out. Yeah. Um, so from the maintenance aspect of it, what I've started liking aluminum for is actually desserts. Mm. And I think because where I guide predominantly, which is Hell's Canyon, it's in the name, it's hot. Yeah. Um, or on the salmon, also really hot. Um, that it's not as difficult, I think, to cook with aluminum when it's hot outside mm. as when it's cold. Because when it's cold, you're going to just need, I think, more to keep that heat um, conducting in the right way. But for uh, for desserts, man, they just fly, fall out of the aluminum Dutch so easy. And then you don't have to worry if you do have something sticking to it about how it's cleaned. And, right. Um, so... Interesting. You know, one of the struggles with cooking multi-course meals with Dutch ovens and charcoal is that you fire your charcoals initially for the main, you know, while you're slamming appetizers out there for people. And then dessert is oftentimes like an afterthought. So you're, you're prepping your dessert while the main is cooking. Then you put your main course out and now you're moving your dessert Dutch oven onto the charcoal so that when people are done with dinner then dessert is hot and ready to come out of the dutch oven but charcoal doesn't burn forever and a lot of times you're dealing with a really diminished coal that's really ashy and i mean there's been a lot of nights on the river that it's like 9 30 and the brownies aren't <laughs> done yet you know and the bats are out and people are like well uh are we gonna wait for dessert or go to bed and it's like i'm sorry do you want like medium rare brownies <laughs> we, made that, mean- we made that we made that Mistake a lot. Brownies that you can eat with a spoon isn't the worst. It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. What I've started doing, though, is I've started getting my dessert on maybe before you even start Mm. doing um, your main. Or like as a food idea, we do stuffed peppers out there a lot, which is a huge hit. Um, It's also pretty easy. We stuff them with uh, rice and cheese and mushrooms and it's pretty easy to have your rice already cooked ahead of time. Mm -hmm. It's something that freezes well. So we'll make it, freeze it in a Ziploc nice and tucked up so that when it's in your cooler, it's also acting as a, as a coolant, but then it's already cooked. So when you're making your stuffed um, peppers, all you're doing is, you know, sauteing some uh, mushrooms and some uh, mushrooms and then getting the rice in uh, to get that warm. And so what I like to do is I will prep the dessert in a Dutch oven while the red peppers are being prepped in another Dutch. Mm-hmm. And I like to put the dessert on the bottom yeah. and stack it in a in a unit or um, put it underneath. If we're not making another side in a Dutch, put the dessert in the Dutch oven and put it underneath the grill. Mm. And you don't have to take as many coals. Right. And so I'm still stealing some coals from the main. But I mean, if you have a grill full of coals... Stealing a couple isn't the worst. Yeah. yeah. Ice management. <sighs> I ran out of ice for the first time this last summer. Did you really? First time it had ever happened. It was so hot. Shame. It was a shame. It didn't run out until like the boat ramp. <laughs> but it was like we ate lunch with the last like lunch was in the cooler with the last of the last little bits of ice that existed were you able to keep ice on the grand canyon trip we were um for 30 days yeah for 30 days it was also pretty cool 
um, we launched at the end of December and then went through January. What were your temps like? Warmer than here. Yeah. Uh, I think we had a high in the 50s maybe once. For the most part, 40s, um, it rained a lot on us, though, mm. so we didn't get very many freeze like true freezes a lot of times in the winter time in the desert you're clear and cold at night and you have to worry about your hand washes freezing or your dishwater or any number of things for your hand wash that really matters because um, it's a little like foot powered pump that pumps water up and out of a bucket and if you freeze water in that foot little ball pump um, you're hosed yeah can't really rewarm that one up got it but go we, submerge it. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's such a soft rubber that you can't really do it in too warm a water. Right. Um, but our temperatures were close to freezing, but not freezing. And then. So you yeah, were wearing a dry suit every day? Every day. How did your neck hold up to having that rubber gasket on it for a month? For the most part, good. Yeah. Um, there were a couple of days. That we were just like pushing hard, and so you're also sweating more because uh, you're in a rubber dry suit right. or Gore-Tex dry suit. Um, and then we had a couple layover days, so yeah. that was like I never got to the true trouble point because I was able to always stop, air it out, air it out. Nice. And we also had, for the most part, clean water. Sometimes when there's big flash events down there, so much stuff gets put into the water mm. that. Sometimes that's when folks have more oh. skin irritant issues. Gotcha. Versus, for the most part, our water had been settled for a long time. And then we did get some big rain events. It snowed a ton in Flagstaff while we were down on the river, watched it snow. Mm. Not very high above us in the river corridor. Um, but again, when it's that cold, you're not spending tons and tons of time so swimming what, in the river. What do you do to to prep a cooler if you're planning on keeping ice for 30 days in it? The methods that I know of is that for the most part, they're huge freezer systems and these coolers will have water frozen in them in one solid, huge piece on the bottom. So you put your whole cooler in the freezer and freeze a solid, it's probably about four inches um, in the meat cooler. You have that like solid four inches piece of ice the whole cooler um and then about halfway up there was a whole other mm. um round of that and you know i think on a different trip i had the meat was actually all frozen within the right. cooler you yeah. just water it all up and one I, solid thing. i know some outfits will freeze it in layers and they'll freeze their food inside the water mm -hmm. um so that you know as that water is melting it's revealing basically a new layer that you can be accessing your food from and then you know you've got to be really careful about when you're opening coolers have a plan before you open the cooler lid yeah don't just open it and gawk at it and shop and <laughs> yeah. ho and hum yeah what, what are we eating yeah i think one of the coolest pieces of cooler technology for holding ice that i learned of is these coolers they're actually basically sealed their mm. plug is not removable. Mm. Um, and it's not tr a true seal because there's about a pinhole that's just constantly open. Oh. And so water never actually is building up in there. Mm. But it's also not allowing enough air that it's affecting the 
temperature of the cooler itself. But it's incredible how well draining a cooler is going to hold your ice longer. That's interesting. I don't think it works the same way when you have just like a full plug that you're draining your own water throughout the day. It really is the slow constant. The problem there is that as you get water on top of that ice, especially when you're in a boat, it's moving around. So it's sloshing back and forth and, you know, really melts that ice quickly. And then uh, if you do remove the, the drain plug to get that water out of there, as that water leaves, it's sucking hot air in to replace that volume that it was just occupying. You know, keeping a, a wet blanket on oh. on top of a cooler makes a world of difference. And I think that, you know, the use case that you and you and I have for coolers where we really do need to go out into these really remote places and, and keep ice for five to seven days. And it's going to be hot. It's going to be hot. Right? That's That's really what the what the Yetis and, you know, those, those premium brand coolers were about. Most people don't need that. You know, they can, they can buy a, a Coleman cooler or whatever. And, you know, if you're out for a day, you're, you're fine. Um, but if you, if you're out for a long time, you need to be looking at a Grizzly or, or a Pelican or a Yeti or, you know, somebody that makes or a really an angle. Or... I don't know about those. Tell me about those. Uh, we started using some angles saying, Oh yeah. E N G E L. Yeah. Those are great. Yeah. They're great. Um, I think something that'll even help any cooler, whether it is a like higher end, you got to keep stuff cold for a long time or your Coleman cooler is also a little foam cell mm. inside of the cooler right. that you put down to the level of whatever's in there. Yeah. And that just decreases the amount of airspace. And so, because there isn't as much airspace, that ice isn't having to work as hard to keep as much cool. Yep. And then with the wet blanket on top, you can even keep a Coleman cooler for days and days and sure. days. Um, yeah. What are some other cooler hacks that people the people need to know about? I tried not to open them until there was shade on them, if, I, if it could be avoided. Yeah. I mean, with the food pack and the meal prep, if you have someone that is the designated shopper or a couple people Mm because putting all of that work on one person can be a lot. What does shopping mean in this scenario? Shopping means going down to the coolers and if you're lucky, finding what you're looking for, (laughs) the first or second place you look. And uh, if you're unlucky, it might mean rifling through everything three times before you realize you just don't have it. So we treat the boats like a grocery store. It's a grocery store. So, you know, you've got camp set up on the beach you've got you know the guests or your buddies or family or whatever sitting around a table and then you need to go get the ingredients for you know the meal or course that you're cooking and so what we call that is shopping you're going to the the grocery store and you're shopping for ingredients hopefully there's a piece of tape on top that says what's in it and that it's not the piece of tape from the previous trip (laughs) (laughs) that is a huge hack labeling things yeah labeling helps labeling yeah. And having that designated couple of folks that go and are the designated shoppers, even if you are doing a rotated cook crew right. or and or you do the method of everyone has to be for sure responsible of knowing what's in their boat. Mm-hmm. And I like both methods. Yeah. Um, I never knew what was in my boat. Right. Often it's hard to know everything that's in yeah. your boat, especially if you're not the one to pack it. Right. And so if you do have someone that's kind of 
managing that whole food world, they're going to know yep. where they put the extra cream cheese from more, two mornings ago. Sarah, they're going to know. Sarah Patrio. Oh, man. Sarah is amazing. <laughs> she knows where all the coolers are and what's in them. She does. Yeah. She she's does. She's great. Um, she's amazing. And often there's going to be someone on your on a trip loves that that's going to be their nerd out Mm -hmm. they love organizing they love cooler jenga they love um you know when your coolers are you have two coolers that are both half empty combining them you're going to save your ice you're going to save your food your coolers and then you have a whole empty space for someone to put whatever in that empty cooler talk to me about the gear that you bring on a summer trip say you're going out for five days five days on the creek what are you bringing and what are you putting it in? What are you keeping it in? I, I probably bring too much because I like to have all of the things to throw on anybody. Mm-hmm. So inevitably I'm going to have a hat, a big, big sun hat yep. as well as a regular baseball hat, because if it is blowing really hard upstream, yep. big sun hat doesn't do you any good. No. You got to have a baseball does hat. does you a lot of bad. does actually. you a lot of bad. <laughs> you become part of the sale. Yeah. Um, so a couple baseball hats, usually in a small, so I'll have a, a dry bag. That's my camp bag that mm-hmm. has my clothes. Um, in the summertime, I can put my sleeping bag and my clothes all in one bag. If it's colder weather, I keep my, those things separate just cause you're going to need more warm, mm-hmm. more warm gear. Um, I have a separate tent bag because tents can get wet or right. if you don't need them, leave it on the boat. Yep. Never needs to come off for yep. any reason. Um, or if it's raining, it keeps its wet dry bag to itself. And that's a great thing to do. You can share a dry bag with other folks, and mm-hmm. it's just a tent bag. Right. Um, I have a ammo can, and I think ammo cans are kind of what you could – it's not a river purse, but it's kind of your uh, – not your carry-on bag, but your, like, toiletries bag. Yeah. But it's an ammo can. Yeah. And uh, so in there I have toothpaste and sunscreen and all sorts of hand salves because mm-hmm. I contend if I'm dehydrated to get really cracked skin and that's something that really saves me. There's glitter in there. You nice. Know? <laughs> um, <laughs> a journal, a book, yeah. Um, a kite anymore just because yeah. it's silly and fun. And um, You're good at the river silly. That's one of my weaknesses that you're very strong at (laughs) you're you're the one that's gonna have a costume i'm gonna have a costume because sometimes it's the only tool that you have yeah like if you have the worst weather of any trip you've ever been on or could imagine there's nothing you can do about the weather you forgot all of the orange juice like there's someone loves orange juice you can't do anything about that but the one thing that i can do is put on a weird outfit and just like diffuse it yeah a little bit yeah i also like fruit snacks i think fruit snacks snacks are are so clutch you can throw them at people if they're swimming they're such a good way to bring get some sugar in folks makes a big difference and you know what something i started carrying is salt i carry my own salt yeah um because I think that's... Can save the day. Can save the day. Whether it's because you need salt on the rim of your margarita, or you need salt on a steak, or you need salt because someone's really dehydrated, you can sprinkle it on some orange and Mm -hmm. put that in somebody. Salt on fruit brings back people from dehydration faster than 
anything else almost that I've instantly. seen. Almost instantly. Almost instantly. Yeah. It it's is incredible. Powerful tool. It's like uh like that scene in Pulp Fiction where they stab the adrenaline into <laughs> And with Thurman's heart or whatever, she just like <laughs> snaps out of it. It's not quite like that, but it's close. Yeah. Um, it makes it makes an almost immediate difference if somebody is really starting to go down hard from dehydration or from heat, too much sun. Yep. A little bit of sugar and salt. And kids yep. can crash so fast because Dude. they're playing and they might be drinking water all day, yep. but they're playing so hard that even with the oodles of Gatorade and fruit snacks that they've eaten... They still just don't have enough in their system. When it's 8% humidity and 111 degrees and it's blowing 20 miles an hour, you cannot drink enough water because you don't realize that you're sweating because it's evaporating in it just instantly. It doesn't even get off your skin. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's amazing how fast that can happen. Yeah. 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 So salt. Yeah. Carry it. Cool. I loved... Ammo cans are such a personal thing and every guide will have like an ammo can that they could spot out of a mountain of ammo cans instantly. It's a very, very personal thing. How it's painted, what stickers are on it, the dents that are in it, where the paint's worn off. Like how you organize it in the inside. Is it all separated out, little compartments, yeah. like perfect, or is it just chaos storm? Chaos. Chaos. Full chaos. Mine would have like seven years worth of river permits in it just like <laughs> wadded up in little corners and i always waited for like some eager ass ranger to ask f to see my permit and just hand him the whole box and be like it's in there <laughs> keep looking <laughs> uh yeah i usually carried um usually carried a gps or an inreach um Carried a pistol, two headlamps, um, a book, sunscreen, sometimes some like little snacky items. I wasn't quite as prepared as what you're describing, but no, it's a, it's a cool thing. The old ammo can. It's amazing to me how the trips evolved, not only from year to year, but like from the first trip of the year to the last trip of the year, like by the time, you know, late August rolls around, I would have like the tiniest sleeping bag, a sleeping pad, maybe a second pair of shorts, a, <laughs> a, a fleece for first thing in the morning. Right. And that was almost it. Like I carried so little stuff. And then the clients would have these bags that were bigger than they were, right. you know, 180 pounds of gear just crammed in there. It's like, you don't need this. It's so rare. It does happen, but it's very rare that it happens. Someone comes on a trip and doesn't have enough. More often than not, they have too right. much. And I think carrying it back to, if you're doing your own trip, know that it's going to take you a couple times right. to really dial it in. Like, yeah. And honestly, if you're starting, take too much. Sure. It's way better to have it than to get out there and... And for, be for a boat trip, for sure. For a boat trip, for sure. If you're backpacking, you can get yourself in trouble like that. Oh, yeah. But for a boat trip, like boats can carry weight. That's what they're really good at. Right. But at the end of it, write down what you didn't use. Mm -hmm. And if you take something twice that isn't like an emergency item. Right. You know, you use it, don't bring it again. You don't need it. Right. Or like hot trips, your clothes are going to dry out so fast that you really don't need 
many extras. Right. If it's going to be wet the whole time, just bring an extra dry bag. Yeah. Some dude, I was guiding that uh that whitewater school, that wet planet school mm-hmm. years ago, and it was March, I think, March or April oh. on the GR. And it was so cold. And every one of those people that were on the trip had dry suits. It's like, oh, that must be nice. You know, I can't afford a $1,000 dry suit. But uh, I was wearing waders. And day one, I got out at Pine Bar and I hooked my um, my oarlock like at my knee. And it tore my waders all the way up to my crotch. And I was like, mm, that's not ideal. No. Fell out of the boat, got wet. It's like, well... And I'd brought a nice sleeping bag in a special dry bag because I really wanted my sleeping bag to stay dry and nice. And I went to pick up my special sleeping bag in its special dry bag out of the boat. And it weighed like 80 pounds. (gasps) No. Yeah. It had absorbed 10 gallons of water. (sighs) So I had to sleep for the, the whole trip inside my ripped waders. Inside my wet sleeping bag, and I was so miserable, <laughs> and just like trying to keep it together. A lot of these people like wanted to become guides. A lot of them just wanted to learn how to operate on rivers. Um, but that was definitely an exercise in like trying to overcome my own discomfort in order to like you know do the job. What happened to your bag? Did you figure out what the culprit was? It was, it was a fabric dry bag, and it had a liner that had. Um, you know, been compromised. So it just like peeled Yep. and then it became porous. Can't remember who made it. Um, I would love to call them out so that nobody ever buys their product ever again, but I can't remember. (laughs) Yeah. It was brutal, man. It was a tough one, but yeah, you learn. Even in a really, really good dry bag. If I know the weather's going to be bad, I know things could have the potential to get real wet and stay that way whether it's flip drafts or or just weather related i put my stuff in a garbage bag in the dry bag and tie up the garbage bag on its own um that never fails because yeah double layer Mm -hmm. double layer flipping boats done it tell me about it (laughs) give me the story play by play oh it was I've flipped rafts a bunch on purpose when I was training to be a guide, and I've flipped a raft um, once not intending to thus far. You know, there there are those who have, there are those who will, and there are those who will again. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it was 2017. It was that high water year. Um, it was the year the snake Got up to 75,000. We weren't on it quite at that flow. We were at just about 68, 70 was kind of where we were playing at. And um, it was just a crew trip. It was a training trip in April. And I had four folks on my boat, four other crew members. And on the snake, when the water is high like that, a lot of rapids get washed out. What does that mean? Washed out means there's so much water that it covers whatever was causing the rapid feature. There's such a thing as a convergence rapid, which means where the channel gets narrow, a lot of times that creates big roller coaster coaster style waves. 
Um, so there can be a lot of that in the snake when the water's really high like that. And then you have wild sheep and granite, which just become monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't get washed out. They just get bigger. So do you consider wild sheep and granite to be class fives? Depends on the flow. Yeah. I definitely think when the water's high, they become class five just for the sheer volume. Like over over what CFS? In the 30s in granite, the third wave deep drops out erratically. Yeah. So in my mind, that classifies as a class five. Like you can run it, you can gut it right down the middle, have a great run, um, hardly get wet, and the person behind you just like that wave just disappears. Um, So I think when you have a feature like that, that qualifies, Mm -hmm. especially at that volume of river, volume of water. So the this rapid we're talking about, folks, is one of the one of the you know usually a day one rapid on a Hell's Canyon float. And anything, what what would you say green room is? Eighteen thousand, twenty thousand CFS green I room think opens. People might not agree with me. I think granite the green room opens at a lower flow than what people think. Okay. I think it probably opens in fifteen five, 15, okay. but. Somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. I think if I'm going to run it with clients, it needs to be 17. Yeah. Um, and then I think it's really good to about 23 as mm-hmm. the green The green room is a specific run in Granite Rapid that only exists at specific flows. Granite right. Rapid is the rapid. It will be there the whole time. But green room is a specific run within this rapid. And really, it's the first drop. So, oh, yeah. The first drop, drop of Granite. Yeah. So we we always scout it. So we pull over, we hike down to look at this rapid. You set a rock at the water line when you get out of the boat because this is a dam-controlled um, dam river and they can be opening or, um, or closing the gates at any time and often do. So even in the, you know, 15 minutes it might take to walk back to your boats, if you come back and the rock that you set at the water line is now very dry or very much underwater, you have a completely different rapid and you probably need to go look at it again. Mm-hmm. And that's happened. Um, but we walk down, we look at it, we assess it and figure out whether we're going to run the green room or not. And if the guides, especially the more experienced guides are in agreement, that's what people are going to do. It's the safest line through it. You know, Todd tried to run around the green room when it was open one time in the gear boat, and that's when he dislocated his shoulder. Yeah. And that was a really scary thing. But I'll I'll get to that story in a second, because there's some lessons learned there that I'd like to pass on. But if you line up on it, you drop into this thing, you can be on a 20-foot boat, and you will completely disappear. Like no one from anywhere else other than above can see you. It swallows a 20 foot long raft. And I don't know how many times I've ran that river. Quite a bit, (laughs) quite a few. Um, And every time, like I inhale half of the oxygen in the canyon (laughs) as I drop into that thing. Uh, And I don't think that that feeling will ever go away or be replicated by anything else. I've never seen another rapid that does what the green room does. When it's open and because you, 
go as you're looking at it you're looking at basically a straight horizon line and there's two it's in the center of the river there's two little pinwheels of water that shoot off on either either side and so that's kind of what you're aiming for Um, there is a gauge rock on the left side of the river when you're up scouting and it can tell you pretty clearly if the green room is open or not Mm -hmm. Um, but when you come up to this horizon line it's like the drop in a roller coaster where you do, you just go immediately straight vertical um, up and down. And then because you have the perfect flow of water moving through and the green room is open, you then go immediately straight vertical and up over this wave that looks like it would probably hold you back. It's 100% a hole at other flows. Like the green room is only open when it's open and don't try to run quote unquote, the green room when it's closed because you're running a hole in granite and you might make it through, you might not. But Were you there when the guy got his finger ripped off trying to run it at the wrong volume? No, I was I was here, but I met him later and <laughs> I felt really bad. I like, because I'd heard about the story and I understood the concept. I was new to rafting, but I understood yeah. the concept of it's a hole when it's not open. And yeah. um, this poor dude, you know, they... They always ran it. He said, we always run the green room. And I I think that's one of those, like, lucky things where inexperience m- can be helpful, I suppose. Like, if yeah. that's all you ever know and do, I'm sure when they were running historically, they would have always, fortunately, been lucky enough to hit an open green room. Mm-hmm. But not have the the understanding of the concept of when that's open and when that's closed. And so he, I met him later, I think at my cousin's wedding, like the following week. And he's like, Oh, we just ran the river. And I was like, Oh, I I heard some guy, you know, got his finger caught. They had a net, one of those gear nets on the back of the boat, which danger. danger. Um, And he had his finger in there and it just, yeah, I was in the jet boat when we picked him up and, uh, and, you know, he got on the bus and rode back with us to meet the ambulance. And he Hard told guy. me the same thing. It's like, oh, we run right every time. Did you scout? I'm like, no, we just run right. Yeah, well, enjoy being nine-fingered, I guess. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways, uh, so this high water trip that I flipped on, mm-hmm. um, we ran down through. We weren't scouting anything because there was so much water that it, those eddies were a powerful and the entrance spots to the eddies are small and um, can take a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And if somebody misses, like they're no longer in the correct place to run these massive uh, rapids. Right. And so we ran through wild sheep and, you know, almost 70,000. Did you run it down the middle? Ran it straight down the middle. Yeah. Um, I think when I was running... Wild sheep, I might have actually been slightly left center. And I was in an 18-foot boat. Paul was in a 20-foot boat. Anders was in a 20-foot boat. This is before we had the third 20-foot gear boat. And um, they were both just getting clobbered (laughs) by these waves. (laughs) Just smashed. You know, 20-foot gear boats, four-foot diameter tubes. Right. Like, huge boats just getting smashed. And comparatively, I'm in this little 18-foot boat. 18 is not a little boat by any means. Anders being your brother, which makes Anders watching him brother. get 
clubbed like a seal pup by these big rapids. He's my little brother, so it's yeah. even better. Yeah. Yeah. This is the highest inter- <laughs> highest form of entertainment you could have right there. Meanwhile, I had a completely dry run through Wild Sheep. Nice. Good no job. No joke. Like Gold star. When the water's that big, the only place you can turn to tee up to the next wave is at the top. Yeah. Because it's A, the only time you can see, and B, it's the only time you have the least amount of surface area on that boat where you can counteract the right. force of that water. So we'd go right up these huge, like three-story size waves, turn, tee up to the next wave, totally dry. We were looking around at one another, just going like, what? We're so awesome at stuff. This is amazing. (laughs) And uh, I think I said something like, hey, diddle diddle. And I don't know if I said it for both Wild Sheep and Granite, but I do remember it's one of those phrases I don't say anymore, Mm. if we're going back to River Guide's superstition. Um, And we get to Granite, and... Similar thing. We're not going to scout. Um, I don't remember. I think Anders ended up getting pushed to run first. Yeah. Just in how we caught the water currents, he ended up getting pushed first. I think the goal had been for Paul to run first, which makes sense. He's got the most experience. Right. And again, when the water's that big, you just get caught in a a boil or whatever in one current that moves slightly faster than the other, and you're you're just going. And so Anders went first and I was following and again, we're riding up these huge, beautiful waves um, and turning at the top, squaring up to the next one. And it was that third wave. Yeah. Most beautiful wave I've ever been on top of. It was glass green, gorgeous knife edge Um, and got up top and turned to tee up to the next wave. And it kind of kicked on my left back, but also dropped out at the same time. Right. And um, these big standing waves will collapse periodically. Periodically. And I think having now seen granite at super, super low flows, that dropping out of that third wave has to do with the feature that creates the green room. Mm-hmm. Because it is just a ledge right. that drops into nothing. I would love to see, I've seen the USGS boat go up there and looks like they're doing some sonar mapping of the river Canyon. I would love to see what they're mm. finding in and around that rapid. Yeah. Um, but we're on top of this huge wave. It drops out and all of a sudden I'm free falling with the boat and I look up and there's the boat and I look way, way down and there's the water and did that a couple times. Like it was a big yeah. enough wave that took some time. And I remember swimming through the air to get reattached to the boat. Because when I came off, I was just holding onto the oars, right? Mm-hmm. So my body's no longer with the boat, essentially. And um, got on and held onto the boat. And I ended up on the opposite side of the boat uh, as two of the people, my passengers, and one of my passengers was actually up under the footwell. Right. I was on the downstream side, so I was looking over my shoulder and seeing, you know, again, still in the, we flipped at the third wave of a mile, I don't know, yeah. half mile long wave train. Plenty long. Plenty long. Yeah. We got clocked um, going, I think, 22 miles per hour before we entered that rapid. Which might as well be the speed of light if you're in whitewater. Yeah. So fast. Um, and... So I was just like paying attention to 
hanging on and um sam was in my boat uh he he's an amazing person and is so skilled and so talented and had done a ton of whitewater so i was really fortunate to have him in my boat and he felt um shay's legs up under the footwell because their legs would hit right um and she was in the footwell you know feeling the water the wave change as she's in that footwell and she's taking a breath before going through a wave and knowing that there's not going to be any air there Mm -hmm. for a little while um and sam was able to like reach under grab and pull her out and uh wow i was just trying to hold on (laughs) getting smashed by waves water temperature 36 38 you know i don't remember I know we took the temperature. I don't remember what it was. I mean, it was probably forties. Sn- so. snow, snow melt flood. It had to have been cold. Had to. It was cold. Yeah. I don't think it was thirties. Um, I've been in thirties. It wasn't that cold. Yeah. So, Were you wearing dry suits? Um, I think Sam was in a dry suit. And the other three of us were in layered wetsuits, mm. which for most of the time, yeah. even when it's cold, cold on the snake works. Right. It's not ideal. Yeah. Um, but that works. Hmm. Poor little Shay. Poor little Shay. We had a bunch of like layers underneath our wetsuits and then rain gear on top. So for the most part, unless you go swimming, it's all right. Right. Um, and Patrick Baird was in his kayak and came over and got to our boat right away. And, um, I think Jeff Yankee was in Paul's boat and Paul was able to get over to me and, uh, get Jeff on top of the boat and pull folks on. Nice. And Anders had tried to, he actually had successfully eddied out in like that wave train with his big, huge boat. But then because the water's going so fast, because he saw us flip and he was trying to catch us, mm. he couldn't get back in in time to, you know, like effectively trap us. Wow. And we went all the way down before we could actually get that, I say we, before they could actually get the boat over to the side of the river it was right there at three creeks so basically above oregon hole right so long ways so when we'll just get through this briefly because i said it would but when uh when todd dislocated his shoulder he'd probably been down there for 45 minutes before we got to him and uh, they're, you know waving at us from camp it's like oh that's a pretty eager gear boat crew like hi and then it's like, oh, that's emergency wave. So went down there and he just held on to an oar too long that was in water that was moving a lot slower than his boat. Um, and, you know, his grip strength caused his shoulder to dislocate. By the time I got there, he was like, you know, really looking to me to be able to um, to put his shoulder back in. It was too late. Like those muscles had seized up and stiffened up. We ended up having to call a jet boat put him on an ambulance. I think it was eight or nine hours before he actually got to a hospital where they could um, get his shoulder put back in. Including riding back up through the rapid that he dislocated his shoulder in, in a jet boat with his shoulder still out. Yeah. And you know, the best that I was able to do was just to get his arm tied up so that it wouldn't move around very much. And it was it was a tough thing. And the only positions that I could really get his arm in that I felt like I could tie it up to immobilize it were extremely painful for him. So one of the big mistakes that I made there was not finding 
like his comfortable spot, which people with a dislocated shoulder will immediately show you the spot that their arm can stay in. You just need to block that up with materials, life jackets, like whatever you can find. Don't try and put it someplace else that is easier to isolate it. Like block it up. Okay, last question. We're, we're running low on time, but this was really the crux of what I wanted to get to. A lot of the people I know who guide Whitewater and guide all kinds of things are paid not much money. A lot of them are, are, are actually homeless for part of the year. Guide wages are a tricky thing um, because these, uh, these outfits are really expensive to run. The permits are really expensive to maintain. Um, you know, there needs to be something left over to keep the business running. So it's tough to pay guides really what they deserve. And if you charge enough that you can do that, then your clients don't book anymore because they're going to go with somebody else that doesn't pay their guides very much. Do you think there's any kind of real world solution to this? Like, is there anything that you want to say about the problem? Has it gotten better? It's definitely gotten better. Yeah. Um, at least for where I work, definitely uh, gotten better. Um, there is some different policy that's being written that's trying to combat that. Uh, the way the policy is written, though, is kind of focusing on anyone who works on federal land or uses like a contract using federal land. And um, it's all trying to be based on hourly. Mm. I personally don't i'm an expedition day i'm an expedition day guide i'm not a day boater guide when does your day quit you're out there 24 hours a day yeah so trying to write policy that demands outfitters to pay their guides by the hour i think is going to fail that it, it doesn't make any sense they're certainly trying to implement it um i think it's still caught up in some courts in colorado um you can't on kind you, of a hold. You can't, you can't take time off when you're no, guiding a, a trip like that. I'm not going to sit there and then write down when I took a bathroom break or a like five minute mental break when I took a bath. You know, I, you, you can't effectively keep hours. And you're, you're available to those people 24 hours a day. Oh, yeah. If someone needs something in the middle of the night, but I'm like over my work hours, like yeah. I'm not going to say like, oh, sorry. Yeah, I you clocked know. out, bro. <laughs> Too bad. Yeah, sorry about that <laughs> rattlesnake bite. Yeah, yeah, so I guess as far as that goes, I would like folks who have anything to do with any kind of voting anywhere to pay attention to yeah. that. Because when it's written as policy that um, outfitters and guides need to be paid, I do think there needs to be some policy towards helping people have good wages. Mm-hmm. I do. Um I think the way that is currently the route that's currently being taken to try to combat that has a lot of flaws and it's ineffective. And so I guess that's what I want folks to know is like, do I want all guides to be paid more money for the work that they do involving people's lives? A hundred percent. Do I want outfitters to be able to continue offering their services and not be put out of business due to policy that doesn't make sense? No, absolutely not. Um, yeah. So it's one of those things that's really complicated. If somebody wants to book a trip with you, how do they do it? Um, best thing to do is to go to 
um, windingwatersriverexpeditions.com mm-hmm. um, or call us, give us a call. Yeah. Um, can they request you? Can they say, I want to go down the river with Robin? <laughs> they could. Okay. Yeah, they could. That'd be sweet. I don't know. Uh, yeah, they could. <laughs> <laughs> they could. You're a gun for hire? <laughs> I mean, to an extent, yeah. yeah. To cool. an extent. All right. Thank you for your time, Robin. Yeah, We'll absolutely. do this again. Yeah, please yeah. do. I'm glad uh, glad you made it out of the green room alive. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I noticed you don't sit in the corner. Is that because it's too hot? It's 90 degrees. Nice. Thank you for that. <laughs> See, you came better prepared than Paul. I appreciate that very much. What about up, dog? <laughs> Dude, embarrassing. Come on. <laughs> He's better than that. Come on, Paul. thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe and share the show with a friend you can also rate the podcast and leave a review your support allows me to keep doing what i love which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you for more content and photos follow the show on instagram at six ranch podcast or me at six ranch outfitters This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week.